in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path for uh, realizing the end of suffering, he offers three trainings. And the first training in sila, or purification of speech and behavior, involves the practice of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And in the training of samadhi, or the calming of the mind, it involves the practices of right effort, right mindfulness, and right collectedness of mind, or right concentration. And in the third training, the training of wisdom, in the Eightfold Path, involves the practice of right view and right thought. Now, when we hear right speech, right actions, right livelihood, we get a sense of how we could do that when we think of or, or know our experiences with right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We get a sense of how we might do that. But right view and right thought, how do we do that? So tonight I want to try to point to how right view and right thought are the practice, the practices, that we're doing here. Because the right view of the Four Noble Truths, as Saito Utejini acknowledged, is to inspire and motivate us to try to capture and build upon the elusive thread of wisdom that has drawn us into meditation practice in the first place. Well, that's an interesting comment. How is it that we got interested in practicing in this way? No doubt it has something to do with suffering and realization or aspiration for the end of suffering. But we have to look at where is this suffering coming from? We talk about the nature of conditioning. And our understanding of life is a very deeply and intricately conditioned set of beliefs. We have acquired these beliefs, assumptions, ways of understanding from our parents and other caregivers, from our peers, from our teachers, from the government, from the economic system we grew up in, from every, all of our experiences, as well as from our, you know, the genetics of our parents and others before them, the epigenetics of prior generations, and also our conditioning due to karma the actions that we have taken in the past, however far back your identification with the past goes, and more maybe. So we have this deeply conditioned set of beliefs, assumptions, just the way of viewing the world and viewing our experience in it that is well-formed and still allows for a lot of suffering. You know, when we watch a news clip on TV or on online or a news program, and you see a 30-second news clip, 
And you see what happens. You see, this is the action, you hear what's going on, and you see for yourself. But then, spin commentators come on the show and spin the story or the understanding of what you saw their way. And some spin it left, and some spin it right, and some spin it up, and some spin it down. And after 30 minutes of listening to spin, you don't know what to believe. You saw it for yourself, but you don't know how to understand it. You don't know what to believe. The default setting of our belief is what we have learned to view, or how we've learned to understand things from our prior experiences. How we think about experience is conditioned by what we believe. And we can see that some of our thinking and some of our beliefs aren't necessarily the most skillful for understanding suffering in the end of suffering. Here we are. So, Dan Goleman, in his Varieties of Meditative Experience book. He writes, Our normal consciousness is often highly unhealthy with a general heaviness and unwieldiness of mental processes where the force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest possible degree. Thought tends to be rigid and inclined to dogma. It often takes a long time to learn from experience or advice. Our affections and our aversions are fixed and biased, and in general, the character proves more or less inaccessible. Okay. Luckily, the Buddha has offered an alternate view of conditioning, or another set of beliefs, if you will, a different view the view that when called right view, it is the view, the understanding, that is either pointing to the end of suffering or is the end of suffering. So you have to understand this about the Buddha's view. The Buddha was not interested in a lot of metaphysical, philosophical uh, speculation. He was interested in one thing only. Is this leading to suffering? or the end of suffering. That's the bottom line of the Buddha's teachings. So, the Buddha offered these right views, and he talks about the right views, having the right views, and when some monks were gathered around talking about right view, they asked some questions, so they asked Sariputta, who was second to the Buddha in wisdom at the time of the Buddha, how do we get this right view for ourselves? And Sariputta said, there are two elements to establishing right view in your own mind. The first is, you have to hear what it is from someone else. And the second is, you then have to develop wise attention. What is this hear right view from someone else all about? If you go to a foreign country, you can see everything that's there. You can see how people behave. You can see or see what people do. 
you can see the, the, the flora and fauna, but you may not understand it. You may not, when you see different people's behavior, you might not have any understanding of what's going on. Or you wouldn't know how to understand it. Or even if you're not familiar with the forest here, and you walk out into the forest and you see signs of animals, either footprints or scat or whatever it is, you might, well, first of all, you might not even see it because you're not looking for it. You're not, you don't even know that it's there. So you can walk right by it and not see it until someone who's familiar with this forest walks outside with you and points out, oh, there's a footprint of a deer and there's a sign of a beaver and there's this and there's that. Then when you walk through that forest, you'll see these things and you'll understand what you're seeing. Well, hearing right view from another is like that. It's a map. It's kind of like a map of the mind. And it's just pointing out some of the terrain of the heart that will be discovered in this journey of awakening. Now, the purpose of hearing or having a map is not to just study the map and not take the journey. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of like not much benefit. But it's actually to take the journey. And oftentimes, when you know, when you pour over a map and you see where you're going and what you might see and what you might not see, when you're actually there, you're not interested in the map. You're interested in seeing what's there. Because you have the map in your mind, it's kind of there. So when you see things, you can recognize, oh, that's, that was on the map, that was on the map. If you see something that you don't remember on the map, you can look it up and see how it's understood by locals. Same thing with the teachings of the Buddha. We get a map in the mind. Not to kind of impose or lay over our experience and try to interpret our experience by what we see on the map, but rather to practice as instructed. And as we come upon terrain of the heart and mind that may have been unfamiliar before practice, we understand it because, oh, right, that's what they were talking about. We remember the map. So it's not that we're supposed to kind of learn everything about the journey and then try to interpret our experience. That would kind of involve and allow for a lot of spiritual bypassing, where you just kind of don't do the work, but you just kind of jump to the seemingly goal. It doesn't work. So it's really, get the map, take the journey, let the map reveal, help you understand what it is that you see. Wise attention then must be developed once we have this right view. The Shui Yumin Saito, Saito Tejaniya's teacher, and he says, we meditate to develop right view. This cannot be achieved by the ego. Meditation must proceed naturally by watching any experience just as it is. This is the way to develop right view. We can hear right view but to own it, to confirm it, to uh, develop it within our own mind, practice like this. Now, the Dharma that we are studying is this mind and body. The Buddha, in pointing to the Dharma, and the Buddha's teachings are called the Dharma, 
is pointing to the way things are, or the way it is, or the way things have come to be. And for us it really means this body and mind. How this body and mind is. How this body and mind has come to be this way. So when we study the Dharma, or when we practice meditation, we're actually becoming scientists of ourselves. We're studying, we're paying attention to our experience, this body and mind, in order to gather the data to understand it correctly. All that occurs in this body and mind is natural. It's nature. It's a natural process. There's no mistakes. While we may not understand the causes and conditions giving rise to many of our experiences, physically as well as mentally, it's not accidental. Things just don't happen without there being causes and conditions that give rise to them. So when we talk about this mind-body being a natural process, what we mean is it is conditioned. It is conditioned by causes and other effects that give rise to this type of physical mental experience. Now, when we talk about conditions, conditionality, being conditioned, and the nature of conditioning, we know that, for example, things that happen in the past, or things that we do in the past, have a conditioning effect of how we, how we will respond to a similar situation in the future. If in the past you've always reacted this way, in the future you're quite likely to react the same way. The past, we know, conditions the future. What we don't often understand is that the future can also condition the present. How can the future condition the present? Well, why are we doing this practice? Well, we've heard these teachings might lead to the end of suffering. That's the future. So we have this aspiration. We have this, well, maybe, let's see, let's check it out. And we've had a lot of confirmation from a lot of other people who've been on the journey. And so we could say this potential future that we can imagine is conditioning what we're doing here. Oh. We also know that if something is very distinctive, it has a predominant conditioning effect. For example, we could all be sitting in here, quietly in the middle of our sitting, minding our own mind and body, quite attentive to what's going on, and someone slams the door. If someone slams the door, your mind is immediately conditioned by that predominant experience and, well, the way you usually react to slam doors. It's not just a startle response, that comes, but then you're questioning, like, who did that? What's going on? Why is that happening? Your mind has been taken over, so to speak, by conditions. We know this in our relationships when our buttons get pushed. You know, going along, minding your own business, so to speak, and they too, but they just happen to say something or remind you of something with the tone of voice that is your button. Of course, that doesn't happen to any of you, but we know, we've heard about it. 
<laughs> and so we can see that our mind is deeply conditioned, continually conditioned by just the ever-changing conditions around us. It's not like we have control of the mind. Okay. These conditions, this conditioning, are really the playing out of the laws of nature. If you take a ball and you throw it up in the air, but you have, you know, particular skill, so that when you throw it up in the air, it goes up for a mile. <coughs> and by the, before it comes down, you forget all about it. <laughs> it's slow moving. You forget all about it, and you're walking around, you're, you know. And then later, the ball comes down and hits you on the head. You might think, who did that? <laughs> right? Because you've forgotten that you planted the seed and the laws of nature took care of the effect. You suffer. What we don't see is how that happens in the mind. We barely understand it with, and Western science has you know, observed and articulated the natural the laws of nature having to do with uh, genetics and biology and other living, living beings or trees or plants. And so those laws of biology are well understood. Not that Western scientists or scientists invented them. They just observed the way things are, articulated it, and now we have, well, the natural laws of biology. Okay. We have the physical laws. We have the physical laws of nature that have also been observed. Remember that guy under the apple tree? Saw the apple fall and with a little reflection articulated the natural law of gravity. Right? He didn't make it up. He didn't kind of come up with a creative idea. It's through his direct observation he was able to understand how things had come to be. How the apple had fallen from the tree onto the ground. And then he explained it as, well, this is a natural law. You know, no human controls natural law. No natural, no, no other, otherworldly being does either. This is just cause and effect. Causes and conditions giving rise to effect. So, we are all heirs to the laws of nature. Now, you don't have to agree with the law of gravity. You don't have to agree with it. You can disagree with it. Good luck. <laughs> if you go against, if you somehow find yourself in opposition to the laws of nature, you'll definitely suffer. Right? So what the Buddha was able to articulate from his observation over, well, hundreds of lifetimes as a Bodhisattva, is the natural laws of the unfolding of the mind. You don't have to believe it. But he pointed to how the mind unfolds the way it does. How we create suffering for ourselves. How the mind is conditioned. How the body is conditioned. How neither one of them are, you know, contain or is in themselves or in the aggregate a, you know, a you. There's no you in there. This that appears here is this, well, the, you know, inevitable result of causes and conditions. But we identify with it as me, mine, who I am. This, this is me. And that's a wrong view. Because that view, wrong view in the sense of 
that view leads to suffering. Right view would say, this is the result of causes and conditions. If we understand those causes and conditions, and we live in alignment with them, this stops suffering. <coughs> That's why it's important to hear about the right view, or the Buddha's right view. All Dharma practices, all Dharma practices, cultivate the wholesome qualities of mind that lead to less suffering, and in the same and at the same time, uh, diminish the unwholesome qualities of mind that lead to suffering. So, how do we understand, or how should we understand meditation practice? There are right views of meditation practice. For example, in every moment, something's being known. There is the object that is known, and there is the knowing. Every moment. If you look in this way, that's what you'll see. Now, why is that important? Because the object that is known arises to its own, due to its own causes and conditions, and the knowing equally arises due to its causes and conditions. There really is no one in kind of control of that process. Awareness is remembering, that's the function of mindfulness, is remembering to observe and to recognize the present moment's experience. That's the right view. That's what awareness is. Awareness is remembering to re observe and recognize this moment's experience. Now, this moment's experience may be the object, it may be the knowing of the object, it may be the awareness, it may be a reaction to that experience, but nevertheless, it's what's ha something that's happening in the present moment. That is awareness practice. And the field of our meditative awareness is our own body and mind. There is some instruction for you know, observing and being aware of others' bodies and minds, but it tends to distraction. So paying attention to our own body and mind and our internal uh, experience of them is the primary field of meditative awareness. The Buddha gave a short discourse. In it, he said, there are only six things that ever happen. To paraphrase him, there's only six things that ever happen. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, in some kind of thought process. That's it. You'd think with only six things to recognize, it wouldn't be too difficult, right? And yet, there's a proliferation of all kinds of sights, sounds, tastes, smells, touch, and thought content. So what is the difference between we all, all beings, even dogs, cats, they just experience six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, or some kind of mental process. As Utejmiya acknowledges, the only difference between those who practice and those who don't, those who practice are aware of themselves, recognizing their own experience. That means those who don't practice 
are experiencing life, but they don't recognize it. It sounds a little oxymoronic. It's like, how is that possible? But we all know, we've observed it plenty today, how life goes by, we're on automatic pilot, and we don't recognize it. Anything, anything, can be an object of attention and awareness. Any sight, any sound, any thought, any thought, any belief, any imagination, any fantasy, any... anything can be the object of our attention. And as I acknowledged earlier, as the Buddha acknowledged, anybody's mind can go anywhere at any time. Anybody's mind can go anywhere at any time. And I, when, I, when I first heard that, I asked Upandita, my teacher, one of my teachers in Burma, I said, you mean an arahant, someone who's fully awakened, their mind can go anywhere at any time? And he just smiled, like, well, we'll have to find out for ourselves, won't we? Right. I mean, really, that is the right answer. Because who, who can say, really? So, the meditation clearly is the work of the mind. It's not about the you know, kind of rites and rituals and mumbo-jumbo of one sort or another. It's really working with the mind to understand this is how the mind is. This is the way the mind has come to be and how it unfolds. And the more we understand correctly or through the lens of right view how it unfolds, then we suffer less. This awareness-oriented practice that we're doing leads to this kind of confirmation of right views and the lessening of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.